Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job chapter 22. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we are studying the book of Job, taking one chapter a week. And uh, we are in Job 22. We haven't been in the book of Job in a little bit. And I'm excited to be in Job 22 for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, there's 42 chapters in the book of Job. So we are officially over the halfway mark. And uh, we, we hit the 21st chapter, which put us halfway, and now we're in chapter 22. And I'm also happy to be in Job 22, because if you look at verse 1, the Bible says this, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said. And if you remember, as we've been walking through this book together, we've uh, learned that the vast majority of the book of Job is a conversation between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they are having these conversations, and they're having these different rounds. Job speaks, Job's the one who broke the silence, then Eliphaz spoke, Bildad spoke, Zophar spoke, Job responded uh, to each one of those, that was round one. Then Eliphaz spoke, Bildad spoke, Zophar spoke, Job responded, that was round two. Now uh, we're in round three. The good thing about Job 22 is that this is the last time Eliphaz speaks in the book. So once we're done with this chapter, we're done with Eliphaz. If you remember, Zophar doesn't speak in round three at all. Uh, so the last time Zophar spoke was in Job 20. Last time Eliphaz speaks is in Job 22. And, you know, if you've been studying the book of Job with us, you, you, I'm sure you've noticed this. The, the chapters where Job is speaking are way more interesting than the chapters where his friends are speaking. And, you know, after the, all the friends are done speaking, there's another guy that'll speak, Elihu, and we'll study him out. And, uh, and then at the end, it gets really exciting because then God speaks. And those, those chapters are really awesome. So, you know, they're dropping like flies. We, we got through Zophar. Uh, we're going to get through Eliphaz. And then also the good news is that after Eliphaz, if you, if you look over in your Bible to chapter uh, 25 of the book of Job, you'll see the last time Bildad speaks. And if you notice, chapter 25 is the shortest chapter in this book. Bildad speaks for six verses. So we're almost done with Job's friends, which is really good. And I mean, uh, chapter 25... Six verses, you know, that's going to be like a 10-minute sermon. Uh, so I don't know, you know. Here's the interesting thing. The way we're scheduled right now, and obviously things could change, uh, but the way we're scheduled right now, we're scheduled to be in Job 25, the Wednesday after Easter. So hopefully, maybe, you know, that the Wednesday after Easter, we'll have this fellowship area done and ready to go. We'll preach the six uh, verses there. Maybe we'll have pizza to celebrate our uh, new... Uh, assembly area over there, our new fellowship hall. So uh, just don't cut out on me, guys, all right? You got us halfway through, but we need a few more days out of you. If you can help us, we'd appreciate it. Job 22, go back to chapter 22, and let's, let's uh, see what Eliphaz has to say. Now, if you remember, when, when, when Job's friends speak, we cannot assume that everything they say is true, uh, because at the end of the book, God tells us that everything they said was wrong. Now, the interesting thing about that is some of the things they said was flat out wrong, like they're just lying about Job. We're going to see that in this chapter. In fact, the theme of this chapter is just false accusations against Job. We're going to look at that. Some of the things they said are not wrong. They're just wrong about Job. They're, they're not incorrect when they're talking about wicked people in general, but the fact that they're applying it to Job, that is where they are uh, incorrect. So we're going to walk through this chapter. I'm going to point out for you everything they said, everything Eliphaz says, that is wrong and everything that Eliphaz says that is right. And let me just 
I'll tell you right now, okay, it's good that Eliphaz, this is his last chapter because he does not have a good chapter, okay? Most of everything he says is completely wrong. There's a few things that he says that, you know, could be seen as right. Um, but we're there in Job 22. Look at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Now, Eliphaz is going to make this argument, and he's responding to Job, and he's basically saying, look, Job, God doesn't need you, and you do not profit God. This is the argument that he's saying. He says, can a man be profitable unto God? And then he says, you know, you might ask, what do you mean by that, Eliphaz? And he says, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself. He says, in the same way that a wise person, when they attain wisdom, you know, they gain something that helps them. You know, they gain something that profits them. Maybe it profits them in their relationships. They become a better husband or wife. Maybe it profits them in their health. Or maybe it profits them with their finances. Whatever it might be. He says, in the same way that a a, a human being attains wisdom or gets wise counsel and that helps them become profitable, he says, do you think that that's how God is profited by us? Now, keep your place there in Job 22, if you would, and go with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. should be fairly easy to find. And Eliphaz, he's making this argument where he thinks that the answer to the question should be just an obvious no. Can a man be profitable unto God? Eliphaz believes the answer is no, as he that is wise may be profitable unto unto himself. Eliphaz is basically saying that God doesn't profit from us. And here's the thing. Theoretically speaking, if someone were to say, you know, God does not need you or God is not in need of you, you know, theoretically speaking, that could be a true statement in the sense that God is not in need of us. If we quit on God, if we fail God, that doesn't hurt God in the sense that God is still God. God is still eternal. God is still uh, on the throne. However, where Eliphaz is wrong here, he's wrong in the sense that God has chosen to use us in his work in this world. The Bible says that God has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. And the Bible actually teaches this concept that God invests in us to get a profit out of us. So we're only in the second verse of this chapter, and Eliphaz has already said something that's wrong. Because he's asking this question, and he's trying to make the point that the answer is no. Can a man be profitable unto God? In Matthew 25, in verse 30, we have the famous uh, parable of the talents. And I won't take the time to go through the whole thing. You know that three servants get three different amount of talents, and they're expected to do something with their talents. I want you to just notice verse number 30, Matthew 25, and verse 30. Notice what the Bible says. And cast ye the, notice this word, unprofitable servant. Into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if this guy was unprofitable and the master was unhappy with him and the other guys, were, he was happy with them, what would that make them? They're profitable. They were a prophet because he gave them five talents and they came back with ten talents. He gave them, you know, uh, three talents and they came back with more talents. And here Eliphaz, he's making this point. You can go back to Job uh, 22. 
that a man cannot be profitable unto God, that God does not gain anything from us, and that, you know, he's basically trying to put Job in his, friend, in his place and saying, Job, you're acting like, you know, God gets some benefit from you, but a man cannot be profitable unto God. But the truth is this, that God does get a benefit from us. Because God chooses to use us, and God has chosen uh, to use us in this world. And look, there are some things that if they're going to get done for God in this world, they're going to get done through us, or they're not going to get done at all, period. I mean, God is not going to send down an angel to go knock the doors of Sacramento, California, and preach the gospel. And I preached this before, and I'm not going to take the time to go through and uh, through all the passages, but you study the Bible, and you'll notice that, you know, uh, God sends an angel to Cornelius. Cornelius is praying up to God, seeking salvation. God sends an angel to Cornelius, and you know what the angel does? He does not preach the gospel to him. You know what the angel does? He says, go find Peter. He'll preach the gospel to you. You say, well, why does the angel not preach the gospel to Cornelius? Because God has given, he's entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. Here's an interesting thing. God, Jesus, shows up on the road to Damascus and has a conversation with Paul and doesn't give him the gospel, but sends Ananias to go preach the gospel to him a few days later. You say, why is that? Because God has given the ministry of reconciliation to us. See, we are an investment to God. God has invested in us. And you know, when you think about the fact that God has invested in us, whether we're talking about as a church, whether we're talking about as individuals, you got to ask yourself this question, how good of an investment are you? And are you worth God investing in you even more? I mean, you know, we, we've been busy this week, and the men of the church have really uh, stepped up and been busy this week getting that uh, 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 new building ready and expanding the auditorium. And you say, well, why would we even want to do that? Because we want God to invest in us. Because we, we want to be profitable in the endeavor that God has given us, which is to reach people with the gospel, to disciple new converts, to see people saved and baptized and growing in the Lord and lives changed and all of that. Look, we don't want to be an unprofitable servant, so therefore, we, what we want to be is profitable. We want God to look down at Verity Baptist Church and say, that's a church worth investing into. And, and, and by the way, you know, here's the proof that this, that, that this has been a church worth investing into. God has brought people from all over this country to this church. And, you know, by the grace of God, God has invested amazing church members into this church from all over this country and all over the state. And people have moved here. And, of course, God has invested those of you that didn't move here and were reached by us here. God invested you into our church. But look, God is, invest, God is an investor. And, and, and God doesn't want to throw bad money after good. Uh, excuse me, good money after bad. God, God wants to make sure when he blesses a place, when he helps a place, when he uh, uh, puts his favor on a place, that he's going to get a good return. He doesn't want to look down and say, and, and say you're an unprofitable servant. And by the way, the unprofitable servant, what happened to his talents? They were taken away. And they were given to who? To the guy that was the most profitable. So... Here we have uh, Eliphaz making this point. Can a man be profitable unto God? And he's making the point that a man is not profitable unto God. But in verse 2, we see that he's wrong. A man can be profitable to God. God wants us to be profitable servants. God wants to invest in us. Then he makes this argument in verse 3. And I'll just, you know, uh, spoiler alert, he's wrong again. All right? Verse 3 
Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it a gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? So in verse 2, he made the point that a man is not profitable. And he makes that point again in verse 3 when he says, Is it a gain to him that thou makest thy way perfect? We already saw that's wrong because Jesus was mad at the unprofitable servant. But then in verse 3, he makes this argument. He said, Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? He, so in verse 2, he makes the argument, we are not profitable to God. And then in verse 3, he makes the argument that we are not pleasurable to God, or that God does not derive pleasure from us. He's saying, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Because Job is making the argument that these things that have happened to me have not happened to me because I've been living in some, you know, terrible sin. He's making the argument that, you know, he's not, uh, he's not sinless. He's a sinner like anybody else, but uh, he's been living right. He's been doing right. He's been a righteous and an upright man. We know that to be true from the first two chapters of the book. And, but, but here, Eliphaz is making this point. He's saying, okay, well, if you, let's say you were righteous, Job. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty? Does God derive pleasure from your righteousness? And the point that Eliphaz is making is that, no, God doesn't derive any pleasure from your righteousness. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 4, if you would. You, we just looked at Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Let's look at Revelation chapter 4, the last book in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 4. Look at verse 11. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, the Bible says this. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4 is a chapter where we are in the scene in heaven, and Jesus... And God is being glorified. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. Thou art worthy. This is what's being said at the throne room of, of heaven. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. Notice the context. Thou hast created all things. That's you, that's me. It's every human on earth, every creature on earth, every animal on earth, everything on earth. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So when Eliphaz says, can a man be pleasurable unto God? Well, actually, the answer is yes. In fact, God created us for his pleasure. And did you know that when you live a righteous and a separated life, did you know that when you live a life where you're walking with God, you actually bring pleasure to God? I mean, think about that. Go back to Job 22 if you would. Consider the fact that your life, your life can either be pleasing to the Lord or displeasing. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that God has a group of people that are going to walk by faith and walk with Him. And then the Bible says that God would not be ashamed to be called their God. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Think, think about this. The way you live your life, is God ashamed of you? You have the power. I have the power. We have the ability to bring pleasure to the God of the universe, the creator of everything. We can either please him or displease him. We can be a prophet to him or we can be a bad investment to him. Now, Lifehouse takes this position that says, you know, he takes this position that says, well, God is out there, but God doesn't care about us. God is out there, but he's not a close God. He's not a near God. He doesn't, he, he doesn't derive pleasure from us. He doesn't get any profit from us. But that is not true. 
God is near unto us. God cares about us. God cares about how you live your life and what you do with your life. So we see that Eliphaz is wrong. Verse 2, verse 3. We can be a prophet to God and we can bring pleasure to God. Then in verse 4, Eliphaz says one of the few things in this chapter that are actually correct. He says this, Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? And again, he's asking these, what Eliphaz believes are these rhetorical questions, meant to not be answered, but to drive home a point. And the point that he's making in, these, in this verse is a correct point, because what he's saying is, look, Eliphaz is saying to Job, you are not on the same level with God. Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? What he's saying is this, God doesn't fear us. God, we're, we're, we're not a threat to God. We're not on the same level. We're not equal with God. We're not contemporaries with God. Then he says this, will he enter with thee into judgment? Here's what he's saying. Because Job's actually been saying, this is one of the things that Job said that was wrong. Job has been, he's not accused God and he has not charged God falsely, but he has brought up the point that he doesn't understand why this is happening to him. And he's, he said, I wish I could take, he's basically said, I wish I could take God to court. I mean, I wish I could take God to court and, and, and have a lawyer defend me and cross-examine him and ask him why he's doing this. And Eliphaz, in verse 4, actually says one thing that is correct. He says, look, God doesn't owe you an answer. God can do whatever he wants. God doesn't answer you. God doesn't have to let you in on his secret. God doesn't have to let you in on his plan. If God wants to, he will. And if he doesn't, he won't. Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? He says, look, he's not afraid of you. He doesn't owe you an answer. Will he enter with thee into judgment? You can, uh, you can uh, uh, call him into judgment, but he doesn't have to show up. This is one of the things that Eliphaz says that is correct. Then in verse 5, he goes right back into just saying stupid things. Look at verse 5. Is not thy wickedness great? And thy in, thine iniquities infinite? And again, he's saying this to Job. Eliphaz, again, like all of his friends, falsely accuses Job of being a grave sinner. Is not thy wickedness great? And thine iniquities infinite? And again, you and I have the privilege of reading the first two chapters of the book of Job, and we know that the answer to verse 5 is no. Job's wickedness is not great. His iniquities are not infinite. These things are not happening to Job because of some grave sin. In fact, the opposite is true. This is happening to Job because of how holy he was. Because God was so pleased with him that God put him out there to show the devil, to show Satan, has thou considered my servant Job? An upright man. That I, you, can, you can put him through heartache and he will not accuse me. He will not charge me falsely. So in verse 5 we see that Eliphaz is wrong. So verse 2 he's wrong, verse 3 he's wrong, verse 4 he's right, verse 5 he's wrong. Then we have verse 6. Verse 6 is where he gets really wrong. Because really through the book, what Job's friends have been doing is they, they've been generically, and we saw it in verse, uh, in verse 5, they've been generically just kind of 
throwing these vague accusations at Job. Well, Job, you're a wicked guy. And Job might say, well, how, how do you know? What, what, how do you figure? Well, I mean, you have to be a wicked guy. Look at all these things that have happened to you. I mean, this would only happen to you if you were a wicked guy. This is only what happened to you if you uh, were just some major sinner. They, they have these grave accusations. And Job even calls them on that and says, well, what? what? What have I done? You know, what specifically are you referring to? And they're just saying, well, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, it's got to be something. And they've even accused him and said, well, it's probably something that's been secret because we don't know, but obviously it has to be there because this is the only reason that bad things would happen. And this is the purpose of the book of Job, to show us that, yes, sometimes bad things happen to good people as a result of chastisement. Sometimes bad things happen to good people as a result of reaping what you've sown. But sometimes bad things happen to good people because God is trying to purge you, because God is testing you, because God is trying to make you better. That's, we, the, the, the big takeaway from the book of Job is don't just assume when bad things happen to somebody else that they're in some grave sin. Now, up to this point, they've been pretty generic. You can tell they're at their wit's end. I mean, Bildad isn't even going to speak in this round. Eliphaz is the only one that gives us a full argument, um, and, you know, 99% of it is wrong. And then, you know, uh, Zophar just speaks for six verses, and they're just kind of like, oh, whatever, I'm done. Um, so, in verse 6, he transitions to just flat out false accusations. Because up to this point, they haven't said anything specific. So now he just starts making stuff up. Look at verse 6. He's answering this question. You're so wicked, Job. Well, what do you mean? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for not and stripped the naked of their clothing. Now look, Job did not do this. And Eliphaz is just literally just making this up. And by the way, let me just say this. You know, as, as, a, as a fundamental Baptist preacher, as a preacher in the new IFB, you know, I have the great privilege of having a lot of enemies. And one thing I've noticed is that, you know, you can tell when you're, you're enemies, you can tell when they're losing the argument when they just start making stuff up. At first they try to attack you with doctrine, you know, because they're like, what about this verse? And it's like, oh man, I missed that. You know, I've read the Bible like 20 times and I missed that verse. You know, I've never heard that argument. You know, and then we just rip them apart doctrinally and they're like, oh yeah, well, you're stealing money. It's like, okay. You know, oh, well, you must be a sodomite. It's like, whatever. You're the one that looks like a sodomite. But they just start, you know, they just start making these, these false accusations. This is what happened with Job. For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for not and stripped the naked of their clothing. Here's the first false accusation, and Eliphaz accuses Job of breaking God's laws by unlawfully taking a pledge, because this is actually a, a, a law that God gave to the children of Israel uh, in the book of Exodus, and that this was something that was actually illegal to do in the nation of Israel. Now, we understand that Job was not living in the nation of Israel, but the Bible teaches us something that God does not want us to do. Go to Exodus 22, if you would. Keep your place there in Job. We're going to come right back to it. Exodus 22. You have Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 22. Look at verse 26. What, what is he accusing Job of? Because he says, For thou hast taken a pledge. What's a pledge? A pledge is like security for a loan. When somebody borrows something, 
and or, they, or they borrow money or whatever, and they're supposed to pay it back, often you would ask for a pledge. And it's actually not wrong to ask for a pledge uh, under the Mosaic Law, but it is wrong to keep the pledge for a certain amount of time with certain individuals. But the pledge was basically like, I'm going to give this to you, and this will be my guarantee. I'm going to come back and pay off this loan and then get this back. And if, if I don't pay you, then you can keep my pledge you know, as collateral. Exodus 22, look at verse 26. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by, the, by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only, it is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass, when he crieth unto me, that I will hear, for I am gracious. So here we have uh, a situation in Exodus 22, where somebody takes the raiment as a pledge. And there wasn't anything wrong with taking an article of clothing or a coat or something as a pledge. But God says, look, if you're taking a pledge from a poor man, because look, the vast majority of mankind throughout history has not lived the way you and I live today. I hope you understand that. The way you and I live today, I mean, we, we live like spoiled kings. Throughout human history, people have generally, and, and I'm not just talking about the ancient world. I'm talking about, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago in this country. You know, people had one outfit for their work life and then one outfit for church. They had a coat. They didn't have a garage full of junk and, you know, attics full of junk and closets full of junk and we've got so much clothes we don't know what to do with you know just every once in a while when you find yourself complaining about you know your air-conditioned home and your you know vehicle that you don't like just realize that you're pretty spoiled compared to most of human history and as an american you're pretty spoiled to most of human uh, uh humans alive even today and that's a you know sermon for another day. But the point is this: that people, it's not like it's not like yeah, sure, take my coat. I've got twelve at home. People, they gave their pledge as a coat. That's the only coat they had. They only had one coat. Jesus only had one coat. Remember, he had a nice quality coat. They fought over it and gambled over it at the cross. So Exodus twenty two says, "Look, if thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge." Thou shalt deliver it unto him by the sun, by that the sun goes down. He says, it's fine for you to take his, his coat as a pledge. But he says, you know, when the sun goes down and it starts getting cold, give him his coat back. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. So God says, look, you shouldn't be taking pledges from poor people, you know, and then when, if they need it, you know, just give it back to them. Let them use it during the night when it's cold. So this is a big deal, if you go back to Job 22, when Eliphaz says, because remember, Job was the greatest man of the East at this time. He was the most rich and successful man of his time. And this is what Eliphaz accuses, of, uh, accuses him of. He says, for thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught. He says, you took a pledge and you didn't even need to. And stripped the naked of their clothing. You know, he's, he's, he's accusing Job of being a covetous man, of being a, a fierce man, of, of having no grace and, 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 and showing no kindness. But this is a false accusation. And I'm going to prove to you it's a false accusation 
Because Eliphaz is actually contradicting himself, his own argument. And I'll show you that to you in a minute. Let me show you another false accusation. You're there in Job 22, look at verse 7. Here's false accusation number two. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. So he says, not only did you take you know, people's raiments for naught when you didn't even need to, but he says, people that were just thirsty, they were weary, you could have given them water, you refused to. You have withholden bread from the hungry. You know, Job is a very wealthy man. And he's accusing him of just having no heart. And here's what he's really accusing him of, is of having no, not having the love of God. Let me show that to you. Keep your place in Job 22. Go to 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 3. Towards the end of the New Testament, uh, you, if you go backwards from Revelation, you have Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, and do me a favor, when you find your place in 1 John, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there, because we're going to leave it, and we're going to come back to that part of the Bible in, in a little bit, so I want you to be able to get there quickly. 1 John chapter number 3, look at verse number 17, notice what the Bible says, but whoso hath this world's goods, but whoso hath this world's goods, now look, you could write right next to that verse, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you could write right next to that verse, Job. Because Job had this world's goods. But before you do that, now I like for you to take notes in your Bible, and I like for you to write things down and all that. But before you do that, let me just say this. You could also write your name there. So go ahead and write Job, and then put, you know, dot, 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 and write your name. But whoso hath this world's good? Because you live in 2021... In a time when most people on earth live way better than most humankind through history. And you live in the United States of America. The most, the, the most wealthy, richest country in the world. I mean, poor people in this country. You know, if you starve to death in, your, in this country, it's because you wanted to. You can get food and clothing and cell phones and all sorts of things. You know, this, this, you can get it anywhere you want. And you live in California, which means you don't live in some crappy state with, you know, I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about the weather. You know, you live, you, look, you're, you're living the high life, all right? So when the Bible says, but whoso hath this world's good, and I don't care if you're broke tonight, you're still living better than most people. Being rich is relative. But whoso hath this world's good, I can put my name there. You can put your name there. Notice these words. And seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says we should be generous people. The Bible says we should be generous. If God has blessed you financially, if God has blessed you, you know, monetarily, if God has blessed you with things, if, if, if you've got this world's goods, you know, don't be a Scrooge. 
Don't, don't, like, I want to hoard it all. I don't want to help anybody. I don't want to be there for anybody. You know, the Bible says that we should be generous. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And this is what Eliphaz, keep your place there in 1 John, go back to Job 22. This is what Eliphaz is saying about Job, because Job was a very wealthy man. And he says, Thou was not given water to the weary to drink, and thou was withholding bread from the hungry. He's just falsely accusing Job. In verse 8 he says, But as for the mighty man, he had the earth and the honorable man dwelt in it. Look at verse 9. Thou hast sent widows. The accusations continue. Here's accusation number 3. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Now again, a false accusation. Eliphaz accuses Job of not practicing. Notice, first we saw, he accuses Job of not having the love of God. We saw that in 1 John, right? Because if you, if you don't help, if you're not generous when you see your brother having need, the Bible says, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Now he accuses him of not having pure religion. Go to James if you would. If you kept your place in, in, uh, in, in 1 John, You've got, if you keep going backwards from 1 John, you got 2 and 1 Peter and James. I hope you kept your place in 1 John. 2 and 1 Peter, James. James chapter 1. Now, do me a favor, keep your place in James, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it, okay? James chapter 1, look at verse 27. Notice what the Bible says. Pure religion. Pure religion. And by the way, the word religion is a biblical word. Today there are people who have decided to make religion a bad word, but it's a biblical word. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. You said, what's pure religion? Pure religion is to go to a building that's not next to a methadone clinic and, you know, has stained glass windows and, and bow and do weird rituals and, 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 you know, light candles. Is that what the Bible says? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion has to do with two things. Keeping yourself unspotted from the world, that's how you live personally, holy, sanctified, separated life. But it also has to do with service, with serving others, visiting the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. And Eliphaz says, and that's what pure religion is. And then Eliphaz says about Job, thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arm of the fatherless have been broken. Just these false accusations. And look, you might think, well, what's the big deal? You know, somebody accuses me of not helping a widow. But look, when you're, when you're the most wealthy, powerful man, I mean, this is why, you know, these politicians, wasn't it Donald Trump who's just like fighting to not release his, his, his taxes, you know, his tax forms or whatever? It's embarrassing. Look, if you don't, if, if you don't help the poor or whatever, you know, if you don't give to, 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 to charitable things, and, and obviously, look, most of the people at Verity Baptist Church, you know, you're tithing and you're, you're giving to uh, a charitable organization and all of that. That's great. But, you know, these, these rich politicians, when they're making millions and billions of dollars, I mean, it's embarrassing. Some, sometimes you look at how much they give to charity, and it's like, like some of you give more to this church than they, than they do. You know, and that's why they don't want to release their tax returns and they don't want to show people, you know, because they are covetous, because they are hoarders, because they are greedy. But Job wasn't. 
And Eliphaz is accusing Job, saying, you've just had all this wealth, and you just didn't help anybody, and that's why God took it all away. But here's the thing. We know this is not true. You say, how do we know it's not true? Well, number one, we know it's not true because all of these things that, that Eliphaz is accusing Job of doing, if Job would have done those, those would have been a sin. With as much wealth and resources as he had, it would have been a sin for him to, if somebody comes from the desert, you know, weary and needing water, he's like, I got water, but I'm not going to give you any. That would have been a sin. And we know that Job, none of this happened because of his personal sin. So we know that's not true. But we also know it's not true because the life as himself is a stinking hypocrite. Go back to Job chapter 4, if you would. Job chapter 4. In Job chapter 4, we have Eliphaz speaking for the first time. Remember round 1? And this is before things got really heated and personal. So, you know, by the time we're in Job 22, it's just like gloves off. You broke, I mean, he said you broke the arms of the fatherless. It's like, what, what do you mean? Like, he walked up to some orphan and just like broke his arms. That's why God's doing this to you, Job. It's like, come on, man. Been listening to Biden too much. Come on, man. Good night. What's Trump say? I'm going to have to start listening to Trump. Job 4, verse 3. Behold, this is what Eliphaz said about Job early in the chapter, early in the book. Job chapter 4, verse 3. Behold, thou hast instructed many and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. I mean, did you catch that? Eliphaz in Job chapter 4 says, Hey Job, I know that you strengthened the weak hands. And then in Job 22 verse 9, the same guy says, you, The arms of the fatherless have you broken. Okay, Eliphaz, so which one is it? Did he strengthen the weak hands or did he break the weak hands? Because you're just lying. You're a hypocrite. You're falsely accusing Job. And look, let me tell you something. Falsely accusing somebody is a grave sin before God. We should not take this lightly. People just, you know, they make assumptions. And I always try to tell people, you know, people, people will come to me all the time and say, you know, so-and-so is this and so-and-so is that. And I'll ask them, well, how do you know that? It's like, well, you know, I just kind of think because this happened and that happened. And, I, and I'm like, man, all of those are assumptions. You, you better not accuse somebody about something specifically without knowing what you're talking about, having some proof, having some witnesses, having some evidence uh, in regards to it. Because here we have, Eliphaz says, he says, Behold, thou hast instructed many, thou hast strengthened the weak hands, thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But then, now he's telling us, no, you sent the widows away empty. The arms of the fathers have you broken. You didn't give water to those that were uh, uh, weary. You haven't helped people. So, so Eliphaz is just falsely accusing Job. And look, we should be very careful to make sure we're never falsely accusing people. And look, here's, this includes, go back to Job 22 if you would. Oftentimes, I, I believe that false accusations are a big problem in our society today because this is what people think. They'll repeat something they read on Facebook. And then it's like, well, is that true? Oh, no, well, I'm not falsely accusing you. I'm just, you know, that's what so-and-so said. But you're repeating something that you've not verified. That you don't know it's true. Look, do you realize that our words can destroy people's lives? I mean, especially young people. You know, you can spread rumors about somebody, and then, you know, that the truth can come out, and you can be proven wrong, but, you know, and you can apologize, and and hopefully you do apologize, and and they accept your 
apology and all that, but you know, the truth of the matter is this, that once you allow false accusations to just kind of go out there, you can't bring those back. So the best thing for us would be to be swift to hear and slow to speak. And you, you read something somewhere, somebody says something to you, and you, you know, well, and, and we always give this disclaimer. You know, you give the, dis, the, the, the same disclaimer that the person who told you gave to you. Don't tell anybody this. And then, and then we think that if you tell everybody, you know, you tell 17 people, don't tell anybody this, but let me tell you about Sister So-and-So. No, you're a gossip. You're a busybody. And you're a false accuser if you don't have proof. And it's a big deal. Job 22. Look at verse 10. And by the way, ever since like verse 4, you know, we're now in verse 10, and everything he said is wrong. Okay, so he's not having a good show here. He's not doing a good job. Job 22, verse 10. Therefore, verse 10, verse 11, still wrong. Therefore, snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee. Same tired argument from Eliphaz. He's saying, because you did not help the widows, did not help the fatherless, took a pledge without, you know, need of it, uh, stripped the clothing from the naked, didn't give water to the weary, didn't give bread to the hungry. He says, therefore, snares are run about thee and sudden fear troubleth thee. That's why this is happening to you, Job. Is that true? No, we know that's not true. Look at verse 11. Or darkness, that thou canst not see, and abundance of waters cover thee. And by the way, that, that phrase, abundance of waters cover thee, that's probably a reference to the flood. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I just want you to remember that when I reference back to it. Verse 12, is not God in the height of heaven? Now look, I just showed you clearly how Eliphaz contradicted himself from Job 4 to Job 22. The arms of the fathers have you broken, Job 22. Job 4, thou hast strengthened the weak hands. So, he, he contradicts himself, but he's about to contradict himself in this chapter. Because notice what he says in verse 12. He says, Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold, the height of the stars, how high they are? And thou sayest, How doth God know? So he's about to accuse Job. He's going to accuse Job of having a certain mindset. And the mindset is this, that God is afar off. That that uh, that uh, that God created us, put this world into motion, but He doesn't really care about us. He's kind of drawn away from us, and we're kind of on our own. Now, this is what Eliphaz is saying that Job believes, verse thirteen. And thou say, so Eliphaz is saying, Job, this is what you say. How doth God know? Can He judge through the dark cloud? Thick clouds are recovering to him that he seeth not, and he walketh in the circuit of heaven. Here's the funny thing. Eliphaz says, Job, Job, you know why? You know, all this is happening to you because of all your sin. And the reason you got into your sin is because you think that God doesn't know. How does God know? Can he judge through the dark clouds? Thick clouds are recovering to him, and he seeth not. He, he's, he's, claiming that Job believes that God is so high up in heaven and there's so many clouds between God and us that God can't see us and that's why Job was into all this sin. The funny thing is that Job's never said that. In fact, when Job's friends are constantly bringing up to him and lamenting the fact that, that he's lost all his wealth and you notice how they keep bringing up that he's lost all his money? That seems to be their focus. 
But you'll notice, Job, you, you, you don't really hear him complaining about the fact that he's lost all his money. You know what you constantly hear Job talking about? The fact that he feels that God has turned on him. And what he's really mostly concerned is, is, is his relationship with God. But now he's saying, no, Job, you think God can't hear you. Here's the funny thing. Eliphaz, that's the argument you were making at the beginning of this chapter. You were saying, can a man be profitable unto God? You were saying, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? You were saying that God doesn't care about us, and that God doesn't care, Job, that you're righteous, that you walk with God, and now you're saying that that's what Job says. Look, this is what people often do. They'll, they'll reflect, you know, they'll accuse you of what they're doing. They'll tell you, you know, you believe this! And it's like, no, that's what you believe. That's actually how you started this conversation, life as. So he's claiming that God, that Job doesn't, you know, know about God. And look, there are people that have this mentality. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. You can jot this down if you want. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and uh, 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, a scoffer is someone who laughs or mocks, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Here's what he's saying. The scoffers say, well, if, if Jesus is coming back, when is he coming back? When is the time of his coming? Everything continues as it has been. And the scoffers will say, God doesn't care about us. But look, you better, you better make sure that as a Christian, you don't live your life that way. And you say, well, I, I'd, I'd never say that. Yeah, but you know, a lot of Christians live like that. You would never say, God isn't paying attention, God doesn't care, but you live like you think that God isn't paying attention, God doesn't care. You act like you believe that God isn't paying attention, God doesn't care. Look at verse 15. Job 22, verse 15, Thou hast marked the old way which wicked men have trodden. And again, a false accusation. He's wrong. He's Elijah telling Job, I know what you've done. You looked at the wicked, wicked men and you marked their way. You marked the old way which wicked men have trodden. You, you saw what they were doing and how they were succeeding and that's what you did. Which were cut down out of time. Notice, notice verse 16. Whose foundation was overflown with a flood. And I believe that this is a reference to the biblical flood of, of the Bible. And, you know, I just want to point this out to you because it, it's hard to, to, it's hard to um, put a date on the book of Job. We know that the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. And there's lots of debate as to where the book of Job actually lies. And I'm not interested in arguing with anybody about where it is because we don't really know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. You know, some people think it's like, you know, right, at, you know, before, before, like right after the Garden of Eden. And some people put it in different places or whatever. But, you know, and this is just my opinion. I'm not dogmatic about this, but I believe that the book of Job itself kind of gives us some hints as to when the book of Job took place. And one hint is this, that it says, whose foundation was overflown with a flood. And I believe that there's a reference here and earlier in this chapter being made to the Noahic flood. So I, I think it's, 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 it's a good thought that the book of Job happened after the, book of, uh, after the Noahic flood. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't between creation and the Tower of Babel. It was sometime after the flood, after Noah. What's also interesting is that all throughout the Bible, all throughout the book of Job, if you notice, even in this chapter, God is referred to as the Almighty. 
And, you know, throughout the book of Genesis, God is referred to as the Almighty. He's called the Almighty. And it isn't until the book of Exodus that Moses asks, you know, and he gives his name, I am, and then, you know, we get all these other names for God, Jehovah, and things like that. Uh, so because of how God is being addressed as the Almighty, it kind of makes sense that this is happening during the time of the book of Genesis, but after the Noahic flood, probably after the Noahic flood, before uh, the time of Moses. So it is an older book. It's taking place during a, a, an old time. And again, that's just looking at things and, and deriving some ideas from that. You know, we don't know that for sure. Look at verse 17. Which said unto God, depart from us. This is what Elias has to saying. the people who lived through the flood said. Because in verse 16 he said, which were cut down out of the time. Because in verse 15 he said, you're doing what the wicked people did. It says, remember the wicked people before the flood, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overflown with a flood, which said unto God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh them to scorn, whereas our substance is not cut down, but the remnant of them the fire consumed. Now, in verses 21 and 22, Eliphaz says some really good things. Not about Job. So he's wrong about Job. He's wrong to apply this to Job. But he says some things that are not bad, except for one statement. But they're not about Job. But applied to just somebody in general, they would be good. Verse 21, Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. Now, I want to come back to those two verses at the end um, of the chapter. So let me just go ahead and finish up the chapter, and then I'll come back to those two verses at the end. Look at verse 23. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacle. We'll come back to, to that verse as well. Verse 24. Thou shalt lay up gold as dust. Okay? So in verses 21, 22, 23, he says some good things. Okay? There is one phrase in there that I'm not sure about when he says, thereby good shall come unto thee. And, you know, that's questionable based on what he means by good, but whatever. We'll give him 21, 22, 23 as good, you know, not just flat out lies and and wrong things. But then in verse 24, he gets right back into, you know, charismatic mode. Because if if you remember, in fact, just go real quickly, go back to Job chapter 4. Remember that Eliphaz is our charismatic friend. Eliphaz is our Pentecostal speaking in tongues friend. And, and he gets back, you know, he st- Eliphaz starts as a charismatic in Job 4, and he ends as a charismatic in Job 22. Because you remember in Job 4, when he started accusing Job, what was his first argument as to how he knew that Job was wicked? Job 4, look at verse 12. Remember, this is Eliphaz. He says, Now a thing was secretly brought to me. He said, I got a word. And mine ear received a little thereof. He says, In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on me, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Look, here comes this charismatic experience, verse 15. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, and then he goes on to tell him that the Spirit told him that Job was a wicked person. Well, look, I don't know what Spirit you're, you're, you're listening to, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Because God said Job was upright. 
But you know, Eliphaz is our charismatic friend. You, you, you ask him, well, how do you know that? A spirit told me. <laughs> I had this spiritual experience. The, the room went white. I heard a voice. So he kind of, he goes back to that. Because in verse 24, go back to Job 22, verse 24. He, he gets back into his prosperity gospel preaching. Look what he says. Because in verses 21, 22, 23, he's telling Job to get right with God. And again, Job's already right with God. So these verses don't apply to Job, but they're good verses if you actually were talking to somebody that needed to get right with God. But then in verse 24, he, he gets into his prosperity gospel. Because in verse 21, 22, 23, he told him to return to the Almighty. Acquaint not thyself with him. If thou return to the Almighty, he tell, he's telling him, get right with God, Job. Then in verse 24, he says, then... He says, when you return to the Almighty, then shalt, shalt thou lay up gold as dust, and the gold of earth for as the stones of the brooks. Now look, is that what the Bible says? That if you just start coming to church and get right with God, you're going to lay up gold like dust. I mean, lay up gold like the stones. Okay? That is prosperity, gospel preaching. And look, you say, ah, oh, that's silly. Who would preach that and who would listen to that? Millions of people. Millions, I mean, millions of people. This is what Joel Osteen preaches. The most famous probably preacher on earth right now, since Billy Graham went to hell, is Joel Osteen. And this is what he preaches. You know, just, I mean, I would say look him up on YouTube, but don't. Look me up on YouTube. <laughs> but, you know, you, you get good, good preaching. Get, get Pastor Anderson, get our friends. But, you know, you listen to Joel Osteen's sermons and they're just like, God has the secret to wealth and God has a blessing, the blessing that's in you and, you know, the power of positive thinking or whatever. Then shalt thou lay up gold as dust and the gold of Ophir as the stones of the brook. Yea, the Almighty shall be thy defense and thou shalt have plenty of silver. I mean, this is prosperity preaching. He says, if you get right with God, you're going to have plenty of silver. You're going to lay up gold as dust. For then shalt thou have thy delight in the Almighty, and shalt lift up thy face unto, the God, uh, unto God. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him, and he shall hear thee, and thou shalt pay thy vows. So he, he has this prosperity gospel moment in verses 24, 25, 26, 27. And then in verse 28, I mean, I think we can... Jot it down. Eliphaz is the first person to preach the name it and claim it charismatic doctrine. Look at verse 28. Thou shalt also decree a thing. And remember, this is the context of verse 27 where he says you can pray to God. Thou shalt also decree a thing and it shall be established unto thee and the light shall shine upon your way. Now notice what he says in verse 28. He says, you decree a thing and it shall be established unto thee. What is he saying? He's saying, name it and claim it. That's what the charismatics teach today. Look, let me tell you something. There is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, you have to turn there, says this, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Look, people look at us today, and they say, there must be something wrong with Verity Baptist Church. There must be something wrong with First Works Baptist Church. There must be something wrong with Sure Foundation Baptist Church. Because you guys are just getting persecuted, and you know people are threatening you, and they're bombing your building, and they're uh, protesting you. Let me tell you something. There's no new thing under the sun. God's people have 